All right. Confession time. I just want to say up front before I get going that I'm nervous this morning, unusually nervous, because usually when I'm preparing a sermon, I'm thinking pretty intensely outward about our collective community and about what each of you are going through as well. Um, but because of the personal nature of this series, we're sharing personal epiphanies all season long. I had to reflect on myself a lot, which felt wrong and it felt uncomfortably vulnerable. So I'm just telling you this to say, this sermon is an account of my personal experience and personal lessons that I'm still sifting through in the present moment. I can't guarantee it'll totally resonate or even make sense, but I hope some part of it will be helpful to you. And either way, thank you for holding space with me in this moment. I'm grateful for your witness this morning. Okay, so that said, we look to the text. Here's what I think is interesting. This first line, John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So John was proclaiming that people do something in order to receive something and not just do anything, but ritual and not just receive anything, but the forgiveness of sins, which I take to mean the absence of sin, which is to say the presence of God. John was proclaiming a baptism for the forgiveness of sins and people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem, it says, were going out to him because they wanted to participate in this. They wanted to participate in this ritual moment and they were being baptized and they were confessing their sins. And what this means is that people were directly engaging the divine. They were actively participating in this ritual, both personally and collectively. And it took doing this thing on their part to spark something new and radical in their lives. This moment, which would eventually be canonized and read year after year across time and tradition all over the world, it didn't just fall into their laps. They got up, they left home, they stepped outside of their comfort zone, they broke their usual routines and patterns, and they did something different. Now, John, who they went to, John usually gets hyped up as this weird dude, right? But his description really is meant to validate his prophet status. The clothing he wears is the same clothing of the great First Testament prophet Elijah. The food he eats points to his living situation. He lives in the desert. The wilderness where he sets up shop is also where Jesus is headed 40 for 40 days, just a few verses down in the same chapter. So basically, Everything about John tells us his priority is divine truth-telling because everything we know about him shows an utmost concern with divine intimacy. John didn't care about his reputation or his presentation. He didn't care about what other people thought. He cared about operating out of the fullness of his Imago Dei, which meant he cared 
about posturing himself toward what matters and pointing others toward what matters as well. And we don't have to go far to understand what it is that matters. It's revealed right here in the text when Jesus is baptized and his identity and messianic anointing is made clear by God. This moment in the story is what I like to call the so that. Everything John did was so that the way of Jesus would be paved. It's the reason for all the rest of the story, and not just the rest of the story we read today, the rest of the whole gospel itself. This is chapter one. So not only does John pave the way, but the author paves the way as well. And because we also follow this Christ, the sum of our lives should also pave the way, should also reflect a concern for the so that, meaning our end goals should align with our deeper purpose. And our deeper purpose should not only reflect our Imago Dei, but also always the Imago Dei of the other. John was a shining example of this. He was postured and he was listening and he was doing kingdom work. We can learn from John. We can live into the fullness of our Imago Dei too. This is scripture-based foundational Christian theology. We're made in God's image. The Spirit of God lives within us. This makes us good. It makes us children of God, beloved. It makes us capable of prophet work, stewards of the word, image bearers of divine truth, bringers of the kingdom of heaven on earth now. What I'm saying is this. Our Mago Day makes us powerful. We have real power swirling around within us. We just have to accept it and like a gift, open it up and use it. I believe John did incredible things like powerfully paving the way for Christ because John was in tune with his Imago Day. And I also believe the same can be true for us. Here's where my epiphany comes in. Over the last year, I have come to realize that the concept of manifestation isn't hokey, but is holy. <laughs> that wasn't corny at all, right? <laughs> but seriously, I want to talk with you about it, about this practice of taking something that's theoretical and bringing it into reality. Manifestation involves proactive engagement. It involves the willingness to make changes in our lives and central to it all, the use of our own God-given intuition. Back in the early fall, I was outside. I was working, I was writing, I was working on an op-ed for the Austin Statesman and I had an epiphany and simultaneously a burst of excited energy coursed through my body and around that same moment Lyle happened to wander outside and when I saw him without thinking seemingly out of nowhere I heard myself saying aloud to him Lyle I'm manifesting good things in my life <laughs> it was like 
spirit just rose up and out of me and spoke those words, words, by the way, I have never spoken or even thought before. They caught me by such surprise that I laughed out loud when I said them. But after that, I began reflecting on everything that had led up to that moment, and I began paying deeper attention moving forward. And then, not long after that, I was listening to a podcast on Stoicism. That sounds smart. I've literally never listened to this podcast before. I don't even remember the name. I don't know how to find it for you. There's a celebrity on it that I'm a fan of. And anyway, whatever. Point is, I was listening to this podcast on stoicism and the podcast host quoted someone. Also, I don't know who he quoted. <laughs> Sorry. But he quoted someone who said this. In order to have things you've never had, you have to do things you've never done. And I wrote it down. <laughs> I put it in my office and I looked at it every day for, I still look at it every day. In order to have things you've never had, you have to do things you've never done. What I am learning is that manifestation is not something that happens to us. It's not a luck of the draw or a trick with the snap of our fingers. It is a process that we actually have some control over because it's an energy space that we can choose to enter into. Like creativity, like beauty, like goodness, manifestation can actually be looked at as a part of our Imago day, And so it's not unlike spirit work in that it needs cultivating, forming, and practice in our lives. One way that I've been practicing manifestation is through the courageous act of dreaming. It takes courage, right? Whew. Dreaming has often felt like a privilege I didn't have access to. I think you'll find if somebody is on the margins in any way, maybe you're a woman, maybe you're part of the LGBTQ community, maybe you're a person of color, I, I think you will find that those people don't feel as readily allowed to dream abundantly. In general, it is something I have never really allowed myself to do. Like many of us, I've often struggled with imposter syndrome and imposters don't have permission to dream, right? <laughs> so I would tell myself that the right doors would simply open at the right time. And if something didn't work out how I hoped, I would just call it a shut door and let it go without a question. And this worked for me for a long time. Plus, it felt safe. And I'm, a, I'm an Enneagram 6. I like to feel safe. So it felt safer than the risky business of dreaming, which requires a great deal of vulnerability, right? But as I've gotten older, and especially in this last year, I have begun to realize that this way of thinking not only downplays my very real labor and my intuition, but in doing so, it minimizes my Imago day. And we can't have that, right? So slowly but surely, I began dipping my toes into the waters of abundance. And it's still new, y'all. I don't have any proof for you that it works other than a joyful and peace-filled soul. <laughs> but I will continue peeling off that protective layer that is the scarcity mindset I've been clinging to for so long. And I will dare to dream wildly good things for myself. And I really, really hope you will consider joining me if you aren't there already. 
when we allow ourselves to go there, when we allow ourselves to get into this headspace of daring to dream wonderful things for ourselves, it is true that we will also regularly risk some sort of loss. Our dreams may not come to fruition the way we would have hoped or in the manner we had specifically envisioned or in the timeline that we want, or our dream may not come to fruition at all. And we are terrified of being left with nothing but shame and disappointment, right? This is the cost we pay. We can't go under, over or around, right? We gotta go through. But I am learning that even just the work of dreaming, even if I don't achieve or receive the actual things I had hoped for, the actual practice of it, the journey, if you will, also manifests good things. So when after a time I can see outside of a disappointing result, I am able to identify like, wow, here are some new practices and patterns I picked up along the way. Or, oh, here's some lessons. Here's some really important growth that's going to help me later. Often, daring to dream will even lead to new relationships or to new interactions which would have never happened otherwise. And hey, sometimes the actual dream comes true as well. Either way, we are ushered forward. Our Mago Day shines brighter when we dream. A mantra that has been very helpful for me to find the vulnerable energy I need to dream boldly has been this. God, protect me from what I think I want. I actually took that line, minus the God part, from Miriam Hasna, who Brittany quotes every time she preaches. Y'all need to look her up because she's an amazing teacher. God, protect me from what I think I want. I hold this mantra close as I dare to dream big, bigger than I can even imagine, while also holding my own expectations and visions of what that might look like lightly. It is a dance. It is a paradox, but we love paradox, right? So this is for us, my friends. Okay, dreaming. By the way, I have a thousand of these, but I only put two in the sermon. <laughs> Another way, the second way, one out of two, <laughs> that I've been experiencing manifestation in my life is through my relationship with time. I almost wrote the whole sermon on this. I left out so much, but I typically have a very rigid relationship with time. Can it, does anybody else? I, I yearn, I yearn for structure and for routine and for little change, little to no change in order to cope with my anxiety. But my relationship with time has transformed so much over the last year and it has been so healing and helpful. Primarily, I am learning to listen to my body and to allow my body to help me navigate my way through time as opposed to focusing on productivity. Here's an example, an easy one. All that laundry that's piling up. <laughs> I'll tell myself, I have to do this. I have to do this tonight before I go to bed. I have to do this. And some days for my sanity, I need to do it. But other days, my body tells me no, and I've been learning to listen because instead it tells me to get my ass to the TV <laughs> like, and don't bring the laundry. 
Why? Because my physical and mental and emotional self needs literal rest and laying down and relaxing and watching a movie helps me to do that. It eases anxiety. It nurtures me. It grants me sustenance for another day. Seem funny? The more I listen to my body, the funnier the messages become. One day, half an hour before a meeting, my body told me to go take a bath. And since I'm, we're like, this is quarantine life and I never have any meetings in person. I, I was like, okay, I really need to prepare for this meeting, but I'm going to listen to my body. I cannot tell you how relaxed and confident and prepared I felt going into that meeting. It was like the hot water provided this space. It took care of my actual body and I was able to step back and unplug and actually take breaths and actually begin again and start over. And when I entered the space of needed productivity, I was more equipped. Even this week, I was significantly behind and I really needed to work on this sermon. But instead, one morning later in the week, I found myself tending to my plants. At first, I kept thinking, I really need to go in my office. I really need to go type. But eventually, something deeper within me, a voice I haven't always had access to, calmly and firmly told me, no, this is where you need to be. This is what you need to be doing. So I was like, all right, okay. So I surrendered to that present moment of watering, trimming, tending. And do you know, halfway through that, I had to go run and get a piece of paper and I jotted down the whole entire outline for this sermon in that one moment. <laughs> I wasn't even thinking about it, or I thought I wasn't. Point is, through deconstructing my relationship with time and quite literally rejecting what I'm supposed to be doing a lot of the time, I am learning that I am more in touch with the divine when I am in touch with my body. Obviously, there are jobs, right? There are kids and commitments and responsibilities and limitations. But as much as I've been able, I have begun listening to my body over my to-do list. And if I could extend an invitation to you, it would be to ask yourself how you can do something similar in your context. Where, if at all, do you have need of this? Besides listening to my body, the other way of manifested a new relationship with time has been increasing my relationship with the earth. Some of you already do this so well and I admire you. Going on walks almost daily, spending time with my hands in the dirt through gardening and composting. These things have helped me to develop a more contemplative lifestyle and this has naturally changed my relationship with time. I feel less urgent. I feel less hurried and less worried. And guess what? That makes me less anxious. So I feel less anxious when I'm spending time with the earth. Believe me, I'm still working on this. This is not autopilot for me at all, but it's been good. This transformative relationship with time is something I believe I have manifested because our ability to do things we've never done so that we can have things we've never had is all about posturing. And the thing is, we get to decide on our posture. I can't stress it enough when I say that manifestation requires our participation. It is the act of creating new realities for ourselves by changing our usual responses. 
When in conflict, changing our response. When in triggered, trying to change our response. When experiencing roadblocks, manifesting always involves a willingness to disrupt our own patterns. And this of course includes seeking help to do this when needed, when we can't do it ourselves. Of course, it's easier said than done because when we disrupt our own patterns, we will inevitably disrupt the systems around us as well. Family and other relationships you are in will react to your decision to manifest something new for your life. Sometimes this works out fine, but other times it can be really painful and it can be tempting to turn back. Maybe it doesn't feel worth it. Or maybe the rejection doesn't feel worth it in your ambitions. I used to always give up easily. If I thought I was going to fail, I'd just call it a shut door and head in another direction. But I'm learning that I have permission to claim what I deserve, and I have the wisdom within me to access things like clarity and discernment. So slowly but surely, I'm developing patience and stamina to push past fear of rejection or fear of what other people think about me and be vulnerable and trust that because I'm doing things differently, I will also eventually see different outcomes. We can't control what will happen. We can't control how others will react, but we can control our own posture. We can do things in ways we've never done them, and we can see the healing results. Listen, I'm not giving you platitudes here. I'm not saying that your struggle with mental health or your grief or your God-given personality makeup is going to just transform and suddenly be a-okay or something totally different. I'm not saying that this is the answer to what we need instead of community or professional help or medicine. No. I am right there with you. I am climbing down into the depths with you in solidarity, and I am searching for anything that could aid us in these times, anything that can usher us forward as we seek to live into the fullness of our birthright, our Imago Day. I share all of this with you because I want you to know that you have more power and permission than you think. And I'm going to go as far as saying that this is profit work. We are in the season of epiphany. And if you look at the progression of the calendar in this season, and you go and you look at all the readings and line them up side by side, what you see is epiphany highlighting the great prophets. Over the weeks, we see Samuel, we see Jonah and John, and of course, Jesus. And we see all this prophet language in between. This is what epiphany is all about. These moments of truth divinely provided through the word and the work of the prophet. And all of this ultimately leads to the story of the transfiguration on the last Sunday of the epiphany season, when Jesus leads his closest friends up to a mountaintop and reveals the fullness of his identity to them to the point where he becomes unrecognizable. I believe that part of our profit work is tuning into our Mago Day empowered ability to manifest good things in our lives, wildly good things like healing, like spiritual and emotional abundance. Through this empowerment, we change. We transform into unrecognizable people because we've started doing things we've never done, such as believing deeper and fuller truths for and about ourselves.
Again, this isn't hokey. It is holy. This pinnacle moment of transfiguration is for us. This story is our inheritance. It's given to us so that we can know how it's done. Now, finally, I cannot get through the sermon without acknowledging the crazy events of the week, the Capitol Hill insurrection that took place on the day of Epiphany. And I want to acknowledge this because we all bore witness to it, to this domestic act of terror, and it affected each one of us. And also it doesn't seem to be over. And also it can feel really scary, right? That said, we have been witnessing this for a while, so it's not completely surprising. Just like our personal relationships will be disrupted when we decide to change our own patterns for the better, we have been seeing a similar picture play out in society and in politics. Systems are being disrupted and systems and protectors of those systems are acting out. It is scary, but it is also hopeful. Why? Because they are reacting to our collective energy. They are reacting to our collective manifestation of liberation. They are reacting to the power of it. As these systems flail, I want you to remember who you are. I want you, I want to remind you to call upon your Imago Day in these times. Live into the fullness of it. Manifest, manifest, manifest. What I saw on Epiphany at our nation's capital was a bunch of people operating way outside of their Imago Day. They may have forgotten who they are, maybe they never knew, but not us. Not us, my friends. We know who we are, and we will keep our sights on our end goal, our so that, which is always salvation, always new life, always liberation, the oneness of all things. I am learning that manifestation, this, this inner power that Imago Day provides each of us, is so important because it ultimately contributes to our collective energy and the ability to collectively manifest change in this world. This is prophet work. And so my prayer is this, may we manifest. May our hopes for our own Imago Day be as compassionate as our hopes for the Imago Day of the other. May we manifest each in our own lives and together as one body, may we manifest. And in our manifesting, may we move from the theoretical kingdom of heaven on earth to the realized kingdom heaven of kingdom of heaven on earth now. Amen.